What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork Podcast. Today, we are super, super excited to kind of unpack our relationship with alcohol part two. We had a, <laughs> we had the fun, I think the funny thing is we had part one when we were still called drunk dietitians. So. It was when we were deciding we were changing our names. Got, oh, got it. That was it. That was it. So we have the one and only Veronica Valley here with us today, and she is changing the narrative on sobriety. Um, she's been continuously sober since May 2nd, 2000, and with 20 years of experience as a recovery coach and psychotherapist she understands that there is no one path to recovery. She is the author of the book, Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol, published by Sounds True and the co-host of the Soberful podcast. Veronica has helped thousands of women not only recover from alcohol, but also transform their lives. Veronica teaches that alcohol is not the problem. It's only a symptom of a deeper underlying problem. She helps women dig deep, embrace change, and become who they are meant to be. I return people to themselves, quote unquote, she says. Veronica works with women and men all over the world through her successful and innovative online recovery programs. She helps she has developed the Soberful program into an online subscription community, Soberful Life, and now based in the U.S. after relocating from the U.K., she is married and lives on Lake Tahoe with her son, with her two sons and her husband. Yes. And as Jenna says many times, my face is lighting up this entire time <laughs> throughout the entire it's episode. It's in more than just a pregnancy way right now. <laughs> Thank you. But it's just, you know, as you kind of pulled together in this episode, there's a lot of parallels with relationship with alcohol, relationship with food. And so really the intention behind this is to not shame or guilt anybody who drinks alcohol or enjoys alcohol or has even maybe, you know, had a problem with alcohol, but to just continue to get curious, to learn and grow. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. So here's our episode with Veronica Valley. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Today we have Veronica Valley with us. Veronica, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I was really looking forward to this one. And I feel like we had to just press record right away because there was so much that I wanted to get into, but I didn't want to have the really good, juicy yeah. conversation off air. Um, before we get into anything, and I know we didn't really share much with you off air. Jenna and I have been super open about our relationship with alcohol over the past few years of podcasting. And ironic enough, we did not share this with you. And I don't- You're gonna I, go there right now? Oh yeah, I'm gonna goodness. go there, I'm gonna go there. 
our podcast, just to show Veronica, the growth we've had, our podcast started as drunk dietitians. I felt like we had to share that with her because we're going to get into like, I'm going to use heavy air quotes. I think you call it the land in your mm-hmm. book and mm-hmm. what that means. And like Jenna and I were such subscribers of wellness culture and like, we're the fun dietitians and we quickly learned how not only toxic that name was, but how much it didn't serve us anymore as we continued to heal our relationships with food and body and alcohol and all the things. So I just thought you would find that like super ironic as we kick off this episode. Um, you, you know what I, I love about that? Because I remember you did tell me is, um, the, and I, I love that you have evolved because um, there's such a, um, what's the word, like blind spot with that. I, I'm always kind of like going after what the wellness people from yoga to clean alcohol to dietitians who are green juice in this and organic that and and it's like, but they there's such a cultural like blind spot. Like we just don't go there with alcohol so that you, I mean, I guess for through your work, you couldn't ignore what mm-hmm. was right in front of you. But that's just an example of how um, we normalize a really toxic substance. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that and making us feel better. And but I, I, we always say like we like we swear on this podcast. Just so you know, oh, we good. like to publicly fuck <laughs> up so others can learn and grow alongside of us. And Jenna and I have very different stories and and Jenna, I want you to definitely get into yours eventually, but just more backside for you, Veronica, as we uncover this conversation is I am 210 days sober today, but I'm also pregnant. So that's a part of it, but (laughs) we're going to unpack how there's a part of me that led me to your book. When I found myself saying, I wish I could just be pregnant forever. So I don't have to drink again. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot to unpack here because why does that mean I have to drink again if I'm not pregnant? So we will review that in a bit um, because I definitely want to get to it. But first up, we love to start our episodes with a what the actual fork moment, something that stopped you in your track within the alcohol and wellness space that you've seen recently. What has just stopped you in your track and made you say what the actual fork? So I, th- I think for me, it's the whole uh, clean wine thing. So I-, I noticed on my social, I get, you know, I, obviously because of the algorithm and I'm always mentioning and writing about alcohol, I do get a lot of alcohol adverts, which I can then, you know, just uh, get rid of. And But then I started noticing probably, I don't know, within a couple of years, I want to say something like that, like clean wine. Um, there's lots of like, ha- like ha- I don't know, very, com- we, we don't have this very long word, so... Uh, no hangovers with it, like lots of products around heavily implying that this alcohol was healthy. And I was like, what the fuck? And, and, and then seeing wellness experts, qualified nutritionists, dietitians, blah, 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 promoting clean, like this is, I, I will not touch or promote any other alcohol apart from this clean wine they it's organic they do not use pesticides and all these other things that they don't use and i'm just like the the denial and and i call them out 
and I say, you're a fake wellness expert. You cannot be a healthy yogury wellness person and in any way promote or advocate drinking alcohol because it's a carcinogen. It's a central nervous system depressant. If strawberries did this, you'd not, you'd never touch another strawberry, but it's that, it's that just cultural blind spot that we have. So there's this, and I've been going after the clean wine stuff for a while because it, it heavily implies that it's healthier and that is not a thing. There's no such thing. It's an impossible, it's not a thing, it doesn't exist, but the marketing is saying it's a thing and it isn't. Thank you for sharing that. And I think one thing I want to just kind of start this conversation with that, of course, every single person listening to this podcast or this episode has a different relationship with alcohol. Is that a completely, maybe they've never even thought about alcohol as a relationship, or maybe they kind of, like you said, compartmentalized it into like, okay, I'm going to be healthy and explore my relationship with food, but like alcohol is its own thing over here. And I know in your book, you talk about, you're not only talking about people that are searching for sobriety, but maybe just curious about like an alcohol-free life who maybe never struggled um, with an addiction to alcohol. So I would love to kind of start this conversation off with, um, in your book, you talk about, I believe you reference it and please correct me if I'm wrong. It's like the land, like Mm -hmm. what alcohol promises you versus Mm -hmm. what we actually get from it. So can you kind of jump off and explain some of that to our listeners? So what, and what's really interesting is if you think, you, you ladies, I'm almost 50, you, you guys are probably in your twenties or thirties, but if you think about how we grew up, not drinking was never presented as an option, right? You, you're going to get a drive, you're going to become an adult, you're going to get a driver's license, you're going to get a job and you're going to drink alcohol. It was never, it was also very, you know, it was just assumed. So not drinking alcohol was never presented to me as a, a something, unless you were like a Mormon or a Muslim or something, but everybody drank. So, um, and the reason that we don't question that, the reason that we, we want to drink as adults and as teenagers is we have been conditioned by our culture, by our peer groups and by the media to believe that alcohol is the best and most effective way to get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing, rewarding yourself, romance and sex. Now, I want all of those things. Those those things all sound fabulous. And my culture tells me, alcohol's the best vehicle, where hey, off we go. So when, as our, you know, as we age, even, you know, into our 20s, as that progresses, what nobody tells us is, and I want to be clear here, you can get those things with alcohol, but there's always a cost. Every single time there's a cost. So for me, when I was a teenager, it was really bad hangovers. I mean, I was also very, um, unreliable and you know but when when you're two carrots you know so there was always a cost and because nobody ever spoke about that cost you just kind of rationalize it away that that it's worth it it's worth it but that as we get older year by year that cost increases and the benefits decrease and we get kind of in this place where we don't like, we can, we're aware of the costs. We feel like crap. Um, we do something embarrassing or shameful or we miss a deadline or whatever it is. And we just think I just have to manage it better. If I can just manage, ooh, clean wine. Ooh, that'll help me manage it. But you know, if I just can manage it 
better and balance, you know, and I, every, everyone goes through this and the research shows us we do it for 10 years of just trying to figure out that magic formula of being able to drink so I can go to the land, but not have the consequences before people get to a point where they accept that they're not winning and abstinence, then they have to stop. And then there's just this massive grief because we believe we will never get to that land ever again. And, and, and that feels, I got sober at 27. I 100% believe that, 100% thought, I never was gonna have fun again, never go dancing, never get laid again. Just like, I was just gonna be very boring. And, and the only reason that my, I had so many mental health problems, anxiety and panic attacks and all that kind of stuff. I just wanted peace. So I reluctantly accepted that deal. And it was, I was completely wrong. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I think I can relate. My story is a little different, but so I struggled with infertility for about two and a half years and went through multiple rounds of IVF and was kind of forced. I'm going to use heavy air quotes, forced into sobriety. I thought if I'm going to be going through these very expensive infertility treatments, why the hell would I be adding alcohol into the mix, especially with all the drugs and hormones and things. And so going through that period of heavy grief and just so much shit being stirred up. And then I just took away a coping mechanism and a numbing agent and the land and all these beliefs. It was so hard. Like, and you talk about that in your book, how the, the first kind of, depending on obviously the time period for whoever and what they're going through, like walking away from alcohol is not easy. And then the four, I forget how you categorize them, but the four different kinds of people that will kind of try to pull you back in, even as someone going through infertility treatments, oh, just one drink won't hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're projecting, what does it say about me if you don't mm -hmm. drink alcohol? So that going through that was crazy. But then once you get through it and you process through it, and again, now it's been a longer time. I, I just think to myself, wow, like you just unpack all the beliefs that you hold about alcohol and I'm like, okay, what was I taught about alcohol? Why do I feel this way? Look at our marketing, look at the wellness culture. And there's just, there's just so much there. Um, yeah. And I want to say there that, um, that's a really important thing, you know, that you were trying to get pregnant and you stopped drinking and that was your coping me mechanism and, and numbing out. That's not the purpose of alcohol. But we, we've kind of accepted that. Like, you know, bad day at work, have a drink. You know, argument with your boyfriend, have a drink. You know, and the purpose, if we're going to say the, and I don't, you know, we can't ban alcohol. We shouldn't. Um, it's appropriate at, you know, on rare, on, very occasionally with with food or, or a celebration you know that but to, what we what happens is we because it's everywhere and and it's totally expected that we're going to drink we default to alcohol to manage our emotional lives so when that happens when we default to alcohol as numbing i deserve it i need it we don't have the bandwidth to develop really important emotional tools that every human being needs because and so often when we stop drinking we can feel a bit at sea and we can also feel um uh like emotional teenagers 
Because, I mean, that's how I felt. I, I didn't know how to deal with disappointment or frustration or rejection or fear was a big one. I, I didn't, like, my, I had no role models for that. My feelings were squashed down in my family. So when I stopped drinking, like, I felt like my skin was off. Like, I didn't know how to navigate life. And with, I just didn't have any of these tools and I had to learn them. So I am going to be totally transparent. I have not read this book. I do know that I want to. Um, I know that when Sam, I hope anybody who watches this um, recording on video sees how like glowy and excited Sam's face is. (laughs) She's um, super inspired me into this conversation. But my question to you is, I, I also... I don't know how I would, I guess the only terminology is I am not sober. Um, I do drink on occasion. Um, My history with alcohol, my, I grew up in a family with my grandfather and one of my uncles were alcoholics, um, both sober. My grandfather was sober 20 years before he passed. And I believe my uncle just passed his 10 year mark, which is amazing. Um, and for me personally, I definitely abused it. Like Sam and I have talked about in previous episodes in college, but I I do feel strongly and please feel free to rip me apart for saying any of these things, but I do feel strongly that I have control over my choices and I have really strong coping mechanisms for, my emotions. Um, but I do enjoy a glass of wine or whatever it is with dinner with my husband. So my question to you is, and again, please feel free to use me as a case study (laughs) and tear me apart. I can take it. Um, but do you believe at all in your professional opinion that it is possible to have a very hair air quotes, healthy relationship with alcohol? And I love it. I do love what you said though, that like it's a toxin and if there's nothing health promoting about it. And I completely agree with that. Um, But I'm just curious your response. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to make it clear. I'm not against alcohol or drinking at all. I, I, um, but what my beef is, is with the lie is the alcohol lie that it's, um, that, that, that it's the best way to get to the land or you, um, it's the lie that I have the problem with. So it, Jenna, it's really about cost benefit analysis. You know, that even, so here's the thing, two or three glasses of wine a week, which for I think most people uh, think that that would be, that's like almost negligible. That's enough for a woman to raise her, raise her risk of breast cancer by 15%. So, uh, alcohol is related to so many cancers i mean so many preventable cancers uh um so it's about it's about the cost benefit and i always say to people that's what i do with clients we do a cost benefit analysis and um so we can really see what the cost is what we spend in money time um how it impacts relationships our our integrity all of that kind of stuff and if you're all right with the cost crack on so my my husband rarely drinks he would have like if we went for dinner with a couple who had a bottle of wine he would have a glass and finish half of it um and he has like he loves this liquor called disano and he likes the taste he puts it like in his soup and he maybe he has four drinks a month maybe um some months not even any so um you know it it has its place in this world absolutely i drink diet coke i know that that's not good for me and i really try and watch how much of that I'm currently now, um, my cholesterol's shot up 
And I'm like on this like mission to get it down so I don't have to go on statins because I know it's lifestyle. So I'm cutting out all kinds of things to do that. So I don't think there's any human being who doesn't have a bit of chocolate cake or Diet Coke or a glass of wine. It, it's fine. It's about um, how much space it rents in your head, which is bandwidth, and, and if you're prepared to, to pay the cost for it. I mean, I, I think the biggest message that I'd like women to hear from this, and I don't, I really don't get the sense that young women or most women fully comprehend that alcohol is very different in the female body than it is in the male body. And it is at the root of so many cancers, infertility, perimenopause. I mean, people have menstrual cycles that it doesn't help at all with, you know, PMS or perimenopause or any of that kind of stuff. So, but we're so reluctant to let go of it. So, but a glass of wine here and there, again, it's like a Diet Coke here and there. I don't, Diet Coke is not as bad as alcohol, let me just say that. But we all need to have a little thing, right? Every so often, it's about, it's about balance. But if it's, um, I give an analogy, it's in the book about sandwiches. So people who have a problem with alcohol do four things. And this is, some of your listeners may be thinking, well, I don't know, do I have a problem or not? So people who have a problem do four things, they drink, they think about drinking, they think about not drinking, and they recover from drinking. And it's the thinking about not drinking that is the big indicator. So I know people who don't have a problem with alcohol will think about alcohol in the same way that I think about sandwiches. So I might have a sandwich for lunch today and that's lovely and tomorrow I'll have some soup and the next day I'll have salad and maybe at the weekend I'm at a party and a plate of sandwiches goes by and I think oh, I'll have a couple of those, that's nice. And then the plate goes round again. I'm like, no, I'm good. That's literally how much I spend thinking about sandwiches. So it's it's the it's bandwidth. It's it's if alcohol's renting space in your head, if you're arguing with yourself about whether you're going to drink tonight or not, or like you know maybe you should have a, a, a dry January. In my opinion, only people who have an issue with alcohol do dry January. Like my husband would never think about doing dry January. It just would never occur to him because he thinks about alcohol the same way I think about sandwiches. So if you are thinking about alcohol more than I think about sandwiches, it's just, it's a red flag that, because nobody, we didn't come here to have an argument with ourselves for 40 years about whether we're going to have a glass of wine or some wine or not, not tonight. We have way more important things to do, way more important things. Does that make sense, Jenna? Do you, I didn't rip you apart, did I? Oh, you were very kind. Thank you. <laughs> and I completely agree. I really, I really do. And this conversation even has me just thinking a little bit deeper. I mean, I would never do dry January either. Um, but <laughs> it is, it's definitely one of those conversations where when you are asked the questions and your immediate response feels like a little bit defensive, you know that there's more work to do, right? And I'm not having that response currently, but there, there have been times that Sam and I have actually had this conversation where there were like defensiveness is coming up first. And that that's where I know I need to dig deeper. So if any of our listeners are experiencing any of that right now, we invite you to, to break out that journal. <laughs> so, but, and I want to make this clear because I want your listeners to take this message more than any other. And this is why we try and manage alcohol is because of the belief system about going to the land. You can get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing, rewarding yourself, etc. sober, and it's better. 
it's better. And and also there's so many great alcohol-free wines and spirits you, and because, you know, we do want a grown-up drink. It's totally appropriate to have dinner with your husband and want to have a grown-up drink on a Friday night in a nice glass. Like, that's okay to do that. But it's not actually necessary anymore to ingest the alcohol part because there's so many great products on the market where you can have that grown-up drink that, that's a Chardonnay or whatever it is without the alcohol content in it. So uh, the, I want people to know that you don't give up anything when you stop drinking, that you don't miss out on anything. It's the complete opposite. Yes. I love, love this conversation. And Jen, I'm so happy that you asked that question too, because I know Veronica, you mentioned that in the book, like using your husband as the example, the sandwich example, and, or like you have friends that similar to Jenna can have a glass of wine, not think twice, enjoy it and move on and not think of it more than the sandwich. And that is such a parallel to the work that we do as intuitive eating dietitians when we help people make peace with food when they come to us they can't even be in the same room let's say as a cookie or a box of cookies right because they're going to eat the whole thing they're going to feel guilt they're going to feel shame um and then we help them make peace with it where it's like oh it's just a cookie right now of course alcohol is different like if there's addiction involved and and those types of things but I love that you use that example. And I think I, I want to shift this conversation a little bit to, I believe, Jenna, it was episode 36 where we did our relationship with alcohol and we talked a lot about our college years. Um, and we have a lot of young listeners here. Um, and I think not only college years, I, I know a lot of people, I'm 30 years old. I know a lot of people well into their thirties that are acting like we did at college. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's normal, right? Because we've no- normalized abnormal drinking. Yes. As long as you've got a house and a job and a car, you don't have a problem is how yes. we perceive it. Yes. Right. As long as you do all these other yeah. things. Yeah. You don't get fired from your job because yeah. of alcohol, all, all yeah. the things. So I love when you talk about, so a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol stems from the abandonment of ourselves to meet our connection needs, right? Mm. And two of those important questions are, do you like yourself? And do you behave in ways that enable you to like yourself? Um, And then I wrote down because we can't belong to anywhere but ourselves. And so in the book, you talk so much about how sobriety or just alcohol-free life, like it's that journey to returning to yourself. And Mm. I can't, I literally have pages, Veronica, that I went over with my therapist (laughs) that were like such breakthroughs of just like, because I feel like when I reparent myself and do like inner healing work, I always go to the college high school and college version of Sammy. And there was so much shame. There was such a lack of self-esteem and you literally go through on page 74, a very (laughs) detailed kind of breakdown of how we use alcohol as that vehicle. When, like you said, we don't have the tools and when we don't have the emotional intelligence and we can't set the boundaries, we use alcohol as this tool, but then that only increases the shame, right? Decreases our self-esteem, but Mm -hmm. it's the only thing we know how to turn to. So Mm -hmm. I know I just threw so much at you, but I would love to just hear like where you take that and, and how you could address anybody that might feel that way. So 
let me clarify what being sober and being alcohol free is first. So I'm sober because um, I had a massive problem with alcohol and I absolutely used alcohol because I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. Alcohol was the solution for me and then it very much quickly became the problem. Alcohol free is more people who are, um, they drink a bit, um, they don't like the consequences. They don't, they're not kind of, you know, thinking about not drinking, but every so often they're like, mm, and they're kind of just recognizing, you know what? I actually don't need to drink. You know, I, I actually, it doesn't really bring a whole lot to me. I can actually enjoy the event or the whatever without it. I'm quite happy with a, you know, grown up non-alcoholic drink. So more and more people are recognizing that and just becoming alcohol free because they're just seeing that the cost isn't worth it, but they don't necessarily have so much of a, you know, like a problem with it. So um, one of the things in my world that's talked about a lot is trauma and how trauma is the root of a, a, an addiction problem. And I have a lot of clients who'll be like, I had, had, I had really good parents, you know, I had a pretty good, you know, my childhood, I don't really, can't really think of anything that happened. I mean, you know, I had ups and downs, but um, they get really stuck on that. So how I explain it is, I mean, of course, trauma, like some kind of abuse or, you, you know, that, that um, we can see kind of how that would lead into wanting to use a substance to, to numb ourselves. But we have two primary needs when we're children. We have attachment, which we know about. We know that infants do not thrive without attachment. And we have attachment needs throughout our lives. That never goes away. We, we kind of focus on childhood, but we have attachment needs very much as teenagers, um, and, and adults and, and certainly when we, we become elderly. And the other need that we have as children is authenticity, to be our authentic selves. And what happens is we sometimes inadvertently, our, our, the family of origin that we grow up in, we, we discover that this authentic part of ourselves is not acceptable in our family. So it could be, for example, a good example of this would be if you if you were perhaps gay and you grew up in a family that loved you and and you know wonderful family events but being being gay was not going to be accepted so you had to hide that part of your authentic self and we do that as children because we know that we you know especially when we're young we to survive we have to have these people looking after us um, but it can happen in many other ways you know I felt like that in terms of my family just didn't do feelings and emotions whatsoever. And I have these massive feelings and emotions and I'm just like, ah, huge. And that was just like, so not approved of that I had to, I felt like I just couldn't be who I really was. And um, I started drinking at 14, 15, a binge drinker. And it really, that, and I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin because I couldn't be who I really was because I didn't feel approved. I mean, still to this day, I'm 49, when I'm around my aunts or mother and I'll, you know, say I'm whatever I'm doing and they'll go, oh, what are you doing that for? <laughs> like in this kind of like, Veronica, or like just this kind of sort of disapproving, whatever. So I really had to push that part of myself down and, it, and that is painful. And, and I think, you know, it, it could be all sorts of things, you know, and, and I, I, when we parent, we don't always realize that we're doing this. Um, I, I remember when my, I have two boys and my youngest was four 
my oldest was four and he had um he was doing show and tell at pre-k and um he literally i was like oh but you know you have to show your turn to show and tell go and get get a toy or whatever you want to bring and he came back with like li like literally like this bit of plastic rubbish and i'm like xavier you can't like you need to bring i was like oh nan had sent him this plane from england like this you know british plane. It's like why don't you take that and you can talk about nana being in england but it's like no he wanted to take this bit of plastic rubbish and i was like getting more and more cross with him like no you know choose that what about this what about that and then i had this moment where i was like oh I want him to have the experience I want him to have. And he needs to have his own experience. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, <gasps> absolutely fine. If you want to take that, no problem. And every week he would find the strangest, like bizarre thing. And I'm like, no problem. Because that's what he, the experience, and, and I was trying to make him how I wanted him to be. And I think we do that inadvertently in to different levels so if if it's bad enough alcohol again so then we grow up and we're in this culture that is giving us all this messaging that everything will be solved and everything will be better and you will feel included and part of if you drink this substance because it does it made me feel so comfortable in my own skin at first it really made me for the first hour or two that's how it made me feel but then of course i really really lost myself I just moved so far away from myself and became someone I didn't recognize. And there's nothing worse than saying and doing something, even as you're saying and doing it, knowing that that is not remotely authentic for you. That is not who I am, but yet you are doing it. So when we stop drinking, part of the process is the return to our authentic self. And that takes time. It is a process, but there is nothing that's, where the magic of sobriety happens because when we are or our authentic self there is no buzz better than that i love that that's that needs to be on a t-shirt or something you need to have stickers or merch or something that says that one liner on there i have i'm working on t-shirts and i use it as a hashtag we are having more fun than you are <laughs> i love that i love that but i think that's why your book has hit so much home with me and, and again i don't even know you know, after I give birth, what my relationship with alcohol will look like. But again, I do know that those thoughts were there of just like, I don't know how it's serving me anymore. And so I keep coming back to that. And I think your book has been such a great invitation to get curious about my relationship with alcohol and just where my beliefs came from it. And like you started just unpacking the authenticity piece, how it's really like not about the alcohol. It's all like, okay, well, once we remove alcohol, then the magic starts to happen. And, and that's what has just been so, so moving about your book. So I know we do not, for sake of time, I don't wanna take up too much more of your time, but I did just wanna quickly touch on, if we can, mommy wine culture, Ooh, yeah. rosé culture targeted towards females. So if you could just give us your kind of words of wisdom or, or thoughts on that culture. Yeah, so it's it's a recent trend in the last maybe five to 10 years, I've seen it. And, and um, I talk about this a lot and it's the gaslighting of mothers because especially in the United States, motherhood is really hard and um, there's no affordable childcare. 
you're completely isolated. Your body goes through this enormous change. There's there's nothing in, in I don't think, UK is marginally better. Countries like Scandinavia do a really good job, but it, it, it's, um, you know, you were told this message, you can have everything. You can have a high flying career. You can be a mother. You can look, you know, fabulous at all times. And then I think you become a mother and you realize what a great big fucking lie that was. And it's not true because you can't, you, I mean, it's, unless you can afford the nanny and the cleaner and the driver, you can't have all of those things. It's impossible. And it's, it, and it's so hard and you're so sleep deprived. And then it's just this messaging, you know, mummy needs what happy mummy happy life you know and and this it rise of day drinking play dates i mean i've gone off to quite a few of them there's been there was like a day drinking mummy a mummy group did a day drinking festival they had mummy play date wine there's i have a book here um i ordered it mummy drinks wine because of you i mean it's just it's absurd and um i it's it's gaslighting because women mothers should be fucking angry really angry that that we are not being accommodated or catered for and we're told it's our fault but the, here's the other thing about it you again I, I was at um a couple of weeks ago my kids elementary school had a fundraiser evening uh, you know there was a band food all that kind of stuff and and you know the ticket included i think a glass or two of wine fabulous you know that was lovely that parents could go out and have a glass or two and enjoy themselves really nice but it's it, it's being portrayed as a parenting aid. And for me, this all falls apart because people, you know, I get pushed back on this. And for a while I could, I was like, I know there's something really not right here and I can't, couldn't figure out what it was. You know, all our, our kids are fine. They're taken care of, you know, this is us just having a play date and a glass or two. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm like, mm, what if you were all black? What if you were all black mothers having a play date with wine? I wonder if people would think it was so funny. And having now researched this and talked to lots of different people, and I work with a diversity and inclusion consultant, and she's like, there's just no way I could walk around with a t-shirt saying, you know, tequila or whatever, because we are judged differently. And so there's a lot of white privilege. And if you look at it, it's all white women. It's all white women and it's harmless and it's cute and it's funny. You replace that with black women, it's a very different perspective. So again, I'm not against mums getting together and have a glass of wine. That's not, you do need socialization and you need groups and you need support. It's, it's the marketing of it as a parenting age. And again, what, what is implied in all of that is that it's harmless and it's not a problem. And that's a lie. It's not true. I, I was 10 years sober when I had my first son, but my, my best friend who drinks very occasionally, I mean, she, she said to me, like, she said, you just can't drink when you have a kid. It's awful. She said, she said I had two glasses once and I was just, it's awful having a toddler and a headache and not enough sleep. It's awful. So, I mean, her drinking really, I mean, she's like two glasses, you know, two glasses a week, maybe. Um, uh, so I, I think it's a massive betrayal of women and it's really out of balance. Again, okay for mums to get together and have a drink, it's, but it's not a parenting aid and it is not without significant cost. I think this conversation just made me realize that alcohol culture is part of diet culture. I mean, the way that we've really never kind of made that connection before, but it's you're absolutely right. The way that it's marketed and definitely focused on white women. Um, yeah, it's a lot. 
And I can definitely agree with your friend that having more than one drink in an evening and having a toddler sucks. So it's, it's not worth it. That cost analysis is just not there. And, and yeah, and so you don't need to have alcohol to get to the land. If that cost is just not working for you, I, we, because we, all of these belief systems and one of the most core ones is alcohol, alcohol equals fun, sober equals boring. And, and that's what I rally against is the, um, we, we believe that we're going to just be boring and great. And none of those things are true. I want to, I want to just blow up all of those myths that we have that like, I've been sober almost 22 years. And if this wasn't fun, I'd have been drunk 21 years ago. So I don't do it now because I'm older, but when I first got sober, when I was 28, so we, you were talking about college, you know, I wanted to go out clubbing and to concerts and flirt with men and do all those things. And I was doing it sober. And that's when I had this massive, like, I just had an amazing, like I danced, I did all this stuff, I had great conversations with And I spent like, I don't know, $12. And I got up at 8 a.m. on Sunday and went for a really long run. It's like, oh my God, this is so much better. And I'm, I'm, and then you start looking at people who are drinking and drunk. And I just think that looks really unattractive. I re I'm really glad I'm not doing that because that looks awful. But we are, I, I, my whole kind of philosophy is it's the emperor's new clothes. And I'm the little boy going, is stark bollock naked. Yes. And I feel like too, when you were just talking about the example at the bar, I think you talk about this in your book. And I know I can recall this from college as well as like that fake connection that alcohol gives us. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're out at the bar and you're like all over somebody, maybe you're blackout making out with somebody, which I know a lot of my friends did in college, uh, in our group, which is or a horrible experience, horrible, 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 or even just like you found like the you found your new best friend in the line in the bathroom and you're hugging and then like you like the next day you're like mortified or you're like I don't even know who that was or like that that fake connection yeah. kind of piece right um oh there's just so much I I could literally talk to you for hours and <laughs> uh it's it's all so good but I think what we would love to end this conversation with Veronica, is if you could just give listeners, like if they walk away from this episode, remembering one thing or maybe getting curious yeah. about a few questions or takeaways where they can start to explore their relationship with alcohol, what would you want them to hear? Well, obviously a lot of it is in the book, but I, I think the biggest, the most important thing I want people to know is when we're having that argument with ourselves about drinking or not drinking, how much we're gonna drink, all of that kind of stuff, we only have a finite amount of bandwidth and bandwidth is um, space in our heads and energy. So when we're thinking about drinking, thinking about not drinking, arguing with ourselves, maybe that's 20 or 30% of our bandwidth. Now you can do a lot with 70% bandwidth. You can have a career, you can finish college, you can go on nice holidays, you can buy a house, you can do loads. But what you can't do is emotionally grow in the way you, that you're capable of. So when you stop drinking, you access this hidden 20 to 30% of bandwidth that you've not had access to before. And in my experience of doing this work for over two decades, that is where your extraordinariness is. And I see this in everybody who stops drinking. I see them access their extraordinariness. And there's not like what you get from alcohol, it doesn't even come close to that. 
And I don't want people to miss out on their extraordinariness. And, and, and so I want people to know you don't miss out on anything when you stop drinking, you gain. You gain. There is a process. You do have to go through a process where it is a grief process. It does because the messaging is so deep. But if you keep going, you you get into this new land and think your all sobriety is is a shift in perception. It's all it is. You just see everything differently. I would as much drink a glass of wine as I would drink a glass of bleach. I mean, it doesn't bring anything because I have access to my bandwidth and my extraordinariness and my life keeps expanding because I don't have any of the costs. That was so well said. And there's so much to think about walking away from this episode. So for all of our listeners, Veronica, where can you just let them know the title of the book, where they can get the book and where they can best find you on the internet? Yeah, so the book is, uh, so it's Veronica Valley, V-A-L-L-I, and the book is Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Um, it's on all of the platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Um, Instagram, I'm Veronica J. Valley, and Facebook, I have a Facebook group called Soberful. If you Google my name it, and Soberful, it, all of those things should come up. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves and follow along with us on social at What the Actual Fork Pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next week for a lot more fun. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.